Okay, today's the 25th, so you get a proverb out of chapter uh, 25, and I, I'm going to give you two today, verses 9 and 10. If you and your neighbor have a difference of opinion, settle it between yourselves and do not reveal any secrets. Otherwise, everyone will learn that you can't keep a secret and you will never live down the shame. Don't you love the book of Proverbs? They tell you how to be a better person. It's really good. Imagine a wedding, and um, you're the groom, and you've taken care of everything. You've, you know, you, your commitment to your bride is unwavering. You, you, you've made this choice a long, long time ago, and um, it's gonna, you're going to keep it forever, and you've chosen now a specific date. You're going to get married, and, and you've published that date in advance, and um, the location, the date, they're not a secret. And it's pretty much an open invitation to everybody who finds out about it. Everybody can come on, you know, come on. And you make all the preparations for that day. And, and every detail, according to a very carefully laid out plan, is all laid out. And, and your bride talks about it and looks forward to it. And, and uh, you arrive exactly on time. And you're exactly at the appointed place. And every detail is exactly as, you know, you have laid out this event all this time ago. But when the moment comes, your bride is mostly kind of indifferent. The bride isn't, isn't ready, doesn't really even recognize you, and hasn't really cared enough to remember all the plans that were made. Still, still, given all that, you're kind of like disappointed. This sounds like a bad movie, right, so far? You're, you're disappointed, but your love, you know, does not, it doesn't drop one bit about this failure. It's, you, you, you still love your bride-to-be with a perfect love, and you willingly endure the humiliation of that moment and the frustration and the disappointment and, and things go downhill from there and it gets worse. But you still hold a hope and a future for your bride. It's done in your heart and it's not coming out. This is why I love Palm Sunday. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just um, a date um, in the history of the church, but it's, it represents the absolute perfect love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, he, he deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. He deserves every note of every song we sing and every, every time our attitude is right. He deserves that and more. And um, I mean, I, I love Palm Sunday. Another reason is because I'm just like, if you knew me growing up, you probably wouldn't like me. In fact, you probably wouldn't let me be your pastor now. But um, I, there was just <laughs> issues. You know, I mean, I, just, I was an arrogant young man and I, I just had these, these issues, you know, um, of my own arrogant cause and... Uh, but Palm Sunday, more than any other event, anything else in the Bible, with the exception of resur Jesus' resurrection, what we observe on Easter, Palm Sunday, more than anything else in the whole Word of God, fills me with faith. It absolutely fills me with faith. I mean, my attitude about Jesus before I, I came to know him as Savior was pretty much, it's a fairy tale, unless you can put it into your calculator or stick it into a test tube, boil it down, and prove it to me, it's just not true. <laughs> that was my attitude. I mean, and um, I mean that was that was it before I came to know Christ. But 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 here's what Scripture says: that God had already revealed Himself. He had already proved Himself to every person ever under creation. It's amazing in, in lots of ways. God God talks about how people suppress the truth about Him in Romans chapter one, verse nineteen. For God has shown the truth to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Things that are made. That's the earth, that's the animals, that's you and that's me. 
His invisible attributes are understood by the things that were made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the things that are made, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. This is describing pre-Christ Terry. Okay? Futile in their thoughts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, <laughs> they became fools. That is so me. <laughs> I thought I was so smart. You know, I really did. And the scriptures decide, they describe people who just decide to outright reject the truth about God. They just, you know, they, they not only reject him as savior and they su- suppress the truth about him, but then they, trust, they twist things. They twist, you know, they twist the truth into lies and um, philosophies somehow in an attempt to justify ourselves. And it happens today just like it did in the time of Jesus. You know, people who are supportive of God maybe on the outside, but opposed to him on the inside, they, they ask Jesus they asked him at the time, prove yourself, prove that you're God. You know, be, that would have been me, you know, prove yourself, God. Hey, Jesus, you know, um, you aren't really handling my life the way I think. You're really not handling the earth and all of the stuff that goes on the way I think you should. So I'm going to need some proof that you're really God. I mean, that was kind of like what the Pharisees were sh- shouting. And here was his answer to that exact question. Matthew 12, starting in verse 38, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees and Terry (laughs) answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove it. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he kind of answers them with a code. You're not going to get any signs. The te- scripture says that you already know about me. You already know the truth. You're suppressing it. You're twisting it. But I'm going to give you one more sign. It's it. This is it. <laughs> Jonah. But what happened to Jonah? Just watch for that. So there just comes a point, and I think that Jesus was at that point. There just comes a point where more facts and more evidence don't make the truth any truer, right? The truth is the truth, and we'll give you five facts or 500 facts. I'll give you one fact, but the truth is the truth. And the the truth is that if someone really refuses to hear and see the truth, there's no fact that's going to convince them, right? So even though God had provided, you know, all this physical and historical proof over and over. Uh, I personally had, Terry had to get to the place where all who come to faith, and that is simply choose at some point to believe with my heart. Now, I'm a subscriber to the idea that you don't park your brain and your intellect at the door coming into the church. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. You shouldn't do that. You, You should keep it fully going the whole time because faith in Christ does not require you to stop thinking. In fact, I think the opposite is more true. But um, anyway, so it was only after I made a choice to open my heart and surrender my life to Jesus that, um, you know, and trust him basically with my eternity, that I began to understand some of the truths that were laid out so clearly, and it got it exposed along the way. It says the evidence can clearly be seen. So Palm Sunday to Terry is a really, really, really big deal, and it displays proof um, that culminates in his resurrection a week later. So 
And, and, and I'm, I mean, the, what Jesus said, okay, the proof that he gave was, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. You probably know that story. And he proved once again by that, that he's God. He predicted in advance, the author of life. And he especially proved that when he lifted himself out of the grave. You don't know anybody else that can do that. There is no one else that can do that. Lifted himself out of the grave. The author of life. He says, yeah, okay, I, I got control of this. So today, what we're doing is we're putting a pause in the series we've been um, in for a while, Security and Troubled Times. We'll get back to that in the middle part of, of April. But uh, for the cu- next couple of weeks, at least, we're going we're gonna to be talking about um, um, Jesus and, and, and his, the proof that he's God. And we're going to talk next week about the rapture, the next resurrection, which is where the, 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 the church is lifted up from the grave, and, and, uh, so to speak. So anyway, we'll get back to that. But um, today, I'm going to use scriptures, and we're going to go through some scriptures. And we're going to see some scientific and mathematical proof that Jesus is God. Okay, so this is going to kind of be a nerd fest. Now, there's going to be some math, but I'll do it. I'll do the math, okay? I'll show you my math, and you can tell how I got my problems correct if you're a teacher. But you're going to have to do any math. This isn't going to be that hard. But I want you to know, we're going to see some actual proof. We're going to actually see. People say, you can't prove Jesus. You can't prove God. Things like that. They haven't studied their Bible, people that say that, because you can. So back on April 6th in the year 32... The disciples, now the disciples is not 12 people, it's not 70, it's a lot, lot of people who knew their scriptures. They were shouting that day, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's actually, they are actually quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is coming. And some people were fussing over their plans and their stuff. Other people were getting their hearts ready because they were expecting the, the king. Verse 37 of Luke 19. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus is coming. Now, some people didn't care. Some people didn't pay attention. They didn't care to figure out what all this commotion was all about. The Jerusalem at this point, the city had a population of about 80,000 people. Uh, pretty, pretty reasonable. That'd be like maybe all of Lewis County put together, about 80,000 people. And um, at this point, it's because of the Passover, people were traveling to, um, to, to Jerusalem, so the, the population was starting to swell. And when I mean swell... They were saying not a quarter of a million, not a half a million, but maybe over a million people were coming into this little town. Imagine picking up all of the people who live in Pierce County and sticking them in the area between maybe Grand Mound and Chehalis. (laughs) At a million. Okay? Okay, it's crowded. A lot of people, a lot of commotion. And he's coming, and there are these huge crowds, and he came for every person in that crowd, but some of them didn't want him. The Pharisees didn't want him. And so here, and, and some of the Pharisees, okay, Luke, th- verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They heard what was being shouted. They understand that, he, that, they, that, they, were, that he, they were declaring something about his messiahship, okay? And they said, stop those people from saying those things. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. That would have been something to see. Talking rocks. 
<laughs> now, as he drew near, he, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Now they're hidden from your eyes. Wow, so before now, apparently it wasn't hidden from their eyes. How should these people have known? Well, let's take a look and see what the scriptures tell us about that. Because over 500 years earlier, um, before Jesus had walked the earth, a guy named Daniel, who was one of the prophets, um, had, had, he wrote one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire scripture. And, uh, and he talks all about Palm Sunday. He doesn't call it Palm Sunday there, but he talks about it. In fact, his prophecies are so specific, so accurate, that many people later have tried to post-date the book of, An of Daniel, saying that could not have been written before Jesus made his entry. The specifics are too close. And uh, the, problem, the problem with that argument is that it's, it is... It was written before him. In fact, I want to take a minute or so and authenticate for you the, the book of Daniel. The Old Testament, um, what we have in our Bibles today, the Old Testament in, in Judaism, um, it's their Bible. Too. They don't call it the Bible, but they call it the Tanakh. That's, that's their scripture. And um, the, the, probably the Bible that you have, if you look in the Old Testament, it was translated from the Masoretic Texas. You don't care about that stuff. The point was that that was in existence for a long, long time before Jesus came. In fact, about 300 years, let's say 275 years before Jesus came, um, the, the people were no longer speaking Hebrew as their daily, day, uh, their daily conversational language. But their scriptures were in Hebrew, and they wanted to be able to read their scriptures. So about, 200 and, about 275 years before Christ, roughly, um, about 70 scholars got, gathered together in Alexandria, which was kind of like the big think tank capital of the world. And they spent 15 years translating those Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Okay, so we have a Greek translation of those scriptures that pre predated Jesus by almost 300 years, including the book of Daniel. It was written, and we have proof that it was there way, 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 way before. So here's this book by Daniel. Let's look at that in chapter 9, starting in verse 21. This is written and dated to 538 BC. While I was speaking in prayer, now this is Daniel prophesying here, Gabriel... Okay, Gabriel's one of the angels. By the way, there are only three angels named in the Bible. Okay, if you like this kind of stuff. Gabriel, um, Gabriel is always a messenger. Michael is always kind of a, a battle captain, if you will, does battle. Okay, verse 22. Um, Gabriel informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. I'm coming here so you can understand something. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Um, a week is a, is a time period, right? We measure something in a week. But this, this word, weeks, Shabuah, which is, is literally sevened, it was, um, it was an idiom, like our word decade. If I say a decade to you, you know what I mean, right? You know it means 10 years. For them, a week could mean a group of seven. It could be seven days. There was a week of days. They also had a week of weeks. You can find examples in scripture. I'm not going to take time with that today. Even a week of months or a week of years. In this case, the word is used as a week of years. So a week of years is seven years. You with me? 
okay? The math has started already. Don't, don't roll your eyes back and go to sleep quite yet, okay? All right, all right, save that for the next guy. Anyway, so, um, so, so, so when he said, to, when, when this is being said, um, 70 weeks are determined, this concept made perfect sense to the people that they were hearing this to the Hebrews hearing the scripture. And you can find this exact same usage in several other places, Genesis 29, Leviticus 25, um, and 26, any other places. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks are determined, okay? So some time period to anoint the most holy. Know therefore, and understand that, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, the word there is Mashiach Nagid, it means anointed king, okay? We, say, we, we see prince and we think, oh, this is the second in line, it's not the king, but that is not what's going on here. This is not a junior royalty um, concept here. This, is, this word means um, the king. There shall be, from, from that command, until Mashiach Nagid, there will be 70, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, now we have to do a little bit of math. Seven weeks and 62. Seven plus 62. 60. Look, I got you doing math in church. Isn't that fun? <laughs> okay, so, so okay. Um, that's another way of saying 69. The street, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So that, that word cut off, karath, means, actually means execution. It means death penalty. Um, you can see the same word used in um, Leviticus 7 and, and, and Psalm 37, but, but okay, so it says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, executed, but not for himself. Jesus, you know, didn't die for himself, right? But for you and for me. So here in this Old Testament book, Jesus is, God is actually explaining his plan for salvation. And the people of the prince who is to come, different person, lowercase p, okay, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, now the prophecy jumps from the arrival of the king and the execution of the king, Jesus, to a different prince coming, and now it's talking about end times, something that is still in our future. Then he shall, um, shall, the end of it shall come with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, that's seven years again. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, that last part does not sound like any fun at all. But, but, but did you catch that earlier formula? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in trouble sometimes. So, so here now, Daniel is given by this, this angel a mathematical prophecy. Here's a start date, here's an end date, and here's how long between the two. You see that in that, that text there. It has beginning, a time period, and an end. And so it, it's a mathematically exact number. It's easily figured out. It's, it's, it's a, this is a very scientifically verifiable prophecy, not based on what scripture says, but, but what history would tell us. So here's a couple of conclusions. My little logical 
show me in your test tube mind would say. Okay, so if you can disprove this, this, this prophecy, then the prophesier is a sham. Right? Yeah. If it's not true, it's not true. And you can't believe, you can't trust anything the guy told you. Mm -hmm. But if it's true, and it's given hundreds of years in advance, and it's precisely true, that says something too, which makes me want to back up and be very gentle as I walk. Because someone who can accurately predict things in the future with no error, um, be careful. <laughs> Only God can do that kind of thing. So it's like, okay, so that's, it just confirms, that would confirm the whole thing. So let's just see if it can be verified. All right, so here comes some math. I'll do the math. So we're going to calculate the number of days. Um, by the way, we're, we're going to boil this down, even though it said weeks it's, it's, and, and, um, and so forth. Let's boil this down into a common denominator of days because a day is always a day, all right? A day is 24 hours, you guys. You guys so, so from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, okay, first off, back when this was written, every calendar in the world was a 360-day year. I'm not going to spend much time on this because I can see them already kind of. But if you, you can study it down every, every, every culture, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, the Persians, the Babylon, all of them, 360-day year. I've got like 15 of them I listed here. I couldn't find anything other than 368. Now, um, the Babylonians, by the way, gave us a lot of other things. They are the ones who invented for us 360 de degrees in a circle and 60-minute hour, 60 seconds in a minute, all of that. kind of. So, so the Bible, though, is always using a 360-day year in these old prophecies. You see that in the Old Testament, and you'll see it in the New Testament in Revelation 7 and 8, so it's there. So here's some simple math. Seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that's 69 sevens. So that's the equivalent of 483 years. You tracking with me? Trust, okay. So then you take 483 years times the number of days in a year, which in this example is 360. So it's 173,880 days. You don't have to remember any of this because I'll put it up on the next slide too. But I'm just wanting to show you how I'm checking this out. Okay, so we need to know, find the date when that command to restore Jerusalem, the city, was given so that we can start the clock and run out that 173,000 days. So Jerusalem at this point, at the point this prophecy is given, is a few hundred miles west of where Daniel is, and it's in ruins. Okay? Um, so there were, it, there, I can find in the scriptures four commands to go back and restore something, rebuild something. Three of those are not the ones we want. Here are the three. Um, Ezra chapter 1, uh, by, a, by a king named Cyrus, he said, go back and rebuild. But that relates to the temple. Darius, um, also in Ezra 6, also relates to the temple. A guy named Artaxerxes in, in 458 BC, you see that in the book of Ezra? That also relates to the temple. The decree, the decree given to restore Jerusalem, the city, which was kind of like a nation, the city-state, that was made by a guy named Artaxerxes Longimanus. Not bad, Artaxerxes Longimanus. You, that name's available if you have a little boy named Artaxerxes. <laughs> anyway, so this is a matter of history. Um, Artaxerxes Longimanus. So on March 14th, 445 BC, our calendar, which you'll read about this in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 2. And this, this order relates to restoring the city. Remember, this, the, 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 when we read through Daniel, it said, the streets shall, um, 
be built again, and so the walls. Okay, so this, this prophecy relates to restoring. This is the only one of the orders to go back and restore that relates to the city. The clock starts. March 14th, 445 BC. Now, Messiah the king, the Jesus' triumphal entry comes into, he's coming into Jerusalem. You read about this in Luke 19. Happens on April 6th of 32 AD. It's a matter of history. Um, secular historians have recorded that date. So if, that, if the prophecy is true, the difference between April 6th, 32 AD and April 6th, or, or the date um, of the order to uh, go back and rebuild March 14th, 440, that's got to be 173,880 days. 173,879 days does not work for me. It's either right or it's not. There's not a margin of error that's going to be acceptable for God to prophesy. It's got, if it's supernatural, it's going, to be, it's going to be spot on. Okay, so let's do this calculation on our calendar. They use different calendars. How many days between March 14th, 445 BC and April 6th, 32 AD? Well, okay, they didn't have computers, but we've, we've got some help here. Um, so this, here we go. So 445 BC to 32 AD, that's 476 years. And on our calendar, we have 365 days a year. So that's 173,740. Okay, you see that? Then you add the dates between March 14th and April 6th. That's 24. We have a leap year, right? Yeah. And in that time frame, there was 114 leap years added up. There it is, 173,880 days. That's... Seven weeks, and from that's, our, that's, that's it. Gabriel's margin of error is zero. Zero. Listen, you've got to get more excited about this. I'm just jazzed about this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this kind of prophecy, when I look at something like this, and I have people say, well, you can't prove the Bible. And I'm saying, okay, all right. If I can prove some things in there to you, then you're going to have to confess some things. But anyway, so... Back to Jesus. So let's just take a look at this some more. Let's look at a couple other things besides this amazing thing. Consider when, when it was when Jesus allowed himself to be presented as king, okay? Because there are a lot of times in the New Testament, I'm not going to take you to examples, and there are a lot of times people tried to get him to declare that he was king, and he would not allow it. He said, no, mine hour has not yet come. That's several places. Or he would heal someone and say, don't tell anybody about this. He didn't want to be presented yet as the miraculous Messiah. It was just not his time. Then one day, he not only allows it, he actually arranges it. In all four Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, to the exact day, 173,880 days, 80 days from, after March 14th, he not only allows himself to be proclaimed king, he, he plans it and he makes it happen. That's why people who say, well, he never claimed he was God. They don't have an understanding of the scripture. Because he was very, very plainly saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I am the Messiah. The Mashiach Nagid, the anointed king. So back to our text, uh, Luke 19, starting in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. Now Jesus kicks into prophecy mode and he starts telling them the future of Jerusalem and the people living in it. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in, close in on, on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus now prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem and then he wept because they missed this. He expected them to be looking and, and waiting the things that make for your peace. So Jesus makes this prophecy and he says, the day's going to come and this place is going to get destroyed and there's not going to be one stone left on another. An inconceivable prediction to these people. History tells us that 37 years later, um, Titus Vespasian, who was a Roman ruler, um, went and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem with the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions and they, um, that was quite a siege. There were a lot of deaths. Uh, one historian, a guy named Josephus, estimated that 1.1 million people died during that siege in the city. And the temple was eventually destroyed by fire. One of the Roman soldiers lit it on fire. They were just destroying the place. And Vespasian was upset about that. This is what history tells us. Vespasian was upset that the guy had lit, lit the place on fire because inside the temple was a lot of gold. A lot of gold implements, solid gold things, a lot of gold things. And he was ticked. He wanted the gold. So what did he do? He ordered his soldiers to go back in there after the fire stopped and to take apart the temple stone by stone so they wouldn't miss any of the gold. Jesus' prophecy wasn't just a euphemism, and it wasn't just close. It was not a single stone left upon another. Just if you're keeping score, Jesus' margin of error equals Zero. <laughs> I love that. Why, but why was this temple destroyed? And Jesus tells us in verse 44, because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Over 500 years in advance, Gabriel had given Daniel the exact date for the, for the Mashiach Nagid, for the, the, the anointed king to show up, and the people didn't care enough to keep track of what was coming. And God held him accountable to that and um, to know he was coming. The Bible is full of scientific and mathematically um, verifiable things showing that Jesus is God. I'll give you a couple more. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up because, because um, time got away from us today, but I'm going to run through a couple of quick ones here. Um, the, the details in the Old Testament about the future coming Messiah, here are eight very commonly cited ones. Out of over, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Here are eight. Micah 5.2 says, he'll, he'll, says about Bethlehem, out of you will come an eternal ruler out of Bethlehem. Zechariah 9, the one we read earlier, the king will enter on a donkey. Zechariah 11, he, the price for betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver. Also in Zechariah 11, the, 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 it make, makes mention there that the 30, about the temple, money going to the temple, but going to the potter, there's a whole thing there. You can read that. That, that, the whole, that whole prophecy relates to the fact that the, the price of betrayal that Judas got from the priest was 30 pieces of silver. But it was illegal for priests to, you know, he, he wanted to go give the money back. He felt terrible. Judas was feeling pretty terrible, which is understandable. And um, he wanted to give the money back, but they couldn't keep the, the money because they were, it was illegal for them to, to have blood money, money paid for that. So what they did was that they bought a potter's field with that money. And it was, a, it was basically a potter's field that had been extracted of all of its useful clay. Anyway, so um, that, that prophecy. Zechariah 13 talks about wounds in his hands. Isaiah 53 says that he wouldn't put up his, a defense, even though he was innocent. 
You know, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't, Jesus, Scripture says he didn't open his mouth. Isaiah 53 says he would be um, in the grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. So there are lots of reasons that that's true. He was put to death with thieves, but he, um, he went to the tomb of a rich man. Psalm 22 um, basically said he would be crucified, and we read in Psalm 22, he says, says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, the details about Jesus here are so specific that they're measurable that you can now calculate the odds that one person could fulfill all eight of those. And we won't go through that today, but I can just tell you the combinational probability calculations of this take you out to a very huge number, a 10 with 28 zeros after it. That's a big, big, huge number that, only, that any one person could do that. You'd be way better off just to try to um, win the lottery like 90 days in a row or something. It's just impossible. So Jesus fulfills all of those, um, those spec- specifications way beyond any competent dispute. And those are just eight out of 300, over 300. It becomes absurd. Okay, one more thing. And I shared this once, I think maybe a year or two ago. I've shared it a couple of times. And I get requests for this, so I decided to share this again today. Um, the, um, the, the Old Testament genealogy of the first 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And um, um, in the Old Testament, names actually had a meaning, okay? We see them mostly in scriptures, and they're, they're transliterated. Like, here's how it would sound if you speak it in English and you get this word in your Bible. But if you actually translated the name from what it is, it's a meaning. Names were given meaning. They, they had meanings. People were given names because of something. And uh, so these are the first 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And you'll find these in Genesis chapter 5. Okay, so here they are. The first one is Adam. The word name Adam means man. The next, uh, Adam had Seth. Seth means appointed. For, Eve, Eve makes this comment in the scripture, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom came killed. Okay, so we won't go into that. Um, Seth had a son named Enosh, which means mortal. The next one is Canaan or Kenan. It's, it's actually more correctly Kenan. Um, and uh, that name means sorrow. The, Canaan had a son named Mahalalel, which means the blessed God. So um, that's... Um, okay, and then he had a son named Yared, is that correct pronunciation? And uh, Yared means shall come down. Enoch is his son, and his son's name means commencement or teaching, okay? And he had a son named Methuselah, which comes from two root words, which means death and bring. So his death shall bring. And then the Lamech means despairing, and then, of course, you know Noah, Scripture says his name means comfort. So now when you take all of these names and you string them together into a sentence, here's the sentence if you were to do this. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. That boggles my heart and my mind. I mean, it's... Here in the Old Testament, leave that up for a minute, if you don't mind. Here in the Old Testament scriptures, which are the holy scriptures of the Jewish people, is the gospel in a sentence. It's, 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 is this amazing declaration of the gospel a coincidence, a literary coincidence? Or is it the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit? I mean, did... Jewish priests who collected together the scriptures, the Tanakh, 
this book, this part of the book of Moses, did they somehow conspire a bunch of Jewish priests to stick the Christian gospel into their holy scriptures, which they disagree with, by the way? Of course not. This is, this is nothing less than the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is so full of these kinds of things. Um, I mean, just the evidence we've talked about today, Zechariah predicted he would come in, you know, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation on a colt. Correct? Gabriel gives Daniel this very specific, calculated, scientifically verifiable prophecy. Correct? Jesus talks about stone upon stone. Correct? There are over 300 prophecies that I didn't go into. Correct? Ten consecutive generations tell the gospel story from Adam to Noah. Correct? I mean, (laughs) Romans 1, where we started this, for God has shown the truth to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you see it? Do you see that Jesus is really, truly God? (laughs) He's coming. He's coming. And there's a date when he's coming again, and it's very soon. It's very soon. I'm going to talk about that next week. If he doesn't come between now and next week, I'm going to talk about it next week. I'm going to talk about the plans because the scriptures talk more about his second coming than they do about his first coming. For every scripture about his first coming about Christmas, there are about eight that talk about his second coming. I'm going to talk about what's um, known as the rapture of the church. I'm going to talk about that next week on Easter Sunday. It'll be good. It'll be good to hear what that is because that's our hope. It's a blessed hope. Um, And I just want to say this to every soul who would be hearing these words and you have not yet ever said, okay, it's time for me to surrender my own will to the creator of the universe, the one who holds my eternity in his hands, to surrender that and trust in you. If you've never done that, Proverbs 20 speaks to you today. Verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. You know, there's a time for us to stop striving with God and to stop arguing with God and to let him be our savior. The prophecies that I'm going to share next week about the rapture are every bit as accurate as the ones we've gone over today. And they have eternal consequences for every person who's ever lived. Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) it seems that even though I have willingly stopped arguing with you about you being God and you being my Savior. I have other arguments that I seem to have with you at times. Forgive me for that, Lord. I just ought not. It's just not wise. I'm so grateful for the fact that that you have laid out for my future a absolutely loving and reliable eternity. Thank you for that, God. And I'm thankful, Lord, that every person who calls on your name will be saved. Scripture says that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Eyes are closed right now in the room. If you want to call on Jesus to ensure that you are too saved, now's the moment just to, just to, just to say, okay, I'm going to put my faith in the faithful one. If you'd like to do that, can I just pray with you? 
I'm not going to ask you to get up and get out of your chair, but I just want to pray with you. So I'm going to look around the room. I want to call on the Lord for salvation right now. Just look up at me and maybe give me a little hand wave so I don't miss you. Okay? Thank you. God bless you. Scripture says that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you too? Go. Way to go. Okay, good. Several. Lord, thank you for these hearts. Thank you for these willing, newly born daughters into the kingdom and sons, Lord. Fill us with life, Lord. I pray, Lord, now for those that are moving and they're allowing their heart, Lord, to, to, to be touched by your spirit, that you would walk with us, that you would talk with us, you would order our steps. Scripture says I, that you will order the steps of the righteous. Fill us with life, Lord. Lead us in your way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand? We're going to sing of how good our God is this morning.